But I'll start with the introductions. Hello and welcome. My name is Aranya and I use they them pronouns. Uh, I'm a priest here at Clouds and the executive director as well. And before I kind of introduce what we're doing today, I'm going to go ahead and pass the baton to my fellow um, Dharma Dialogue panelists <laughs> to introduce yourselves as well. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Shosoku. I have a seasonal allergy, so I may cough a little bit. I was born and raised in Japan and came to the United States. Um, I was uh, ordained last year, serving as a preach. Hello, everybody. My name is Jake Nagasawa, and I um, I'm a member of the year committee here at Kazuma. Oh yes. <laughs> Thanks, and I should mention that I'm a professor at McAllister College of American Studies and Religious Studies. You can't see my mouth, but I'm like. My name is Keika, and I'm a former board member here and um, also a professor of Asian American Studies. Jake, so it turns out to be a professor priest runoff. Good way we're sitting. Good morning. Um, I am Bushin Carol Iwata. Um, I'm currently the chair of the Ethics and Reconciliation Committee, and I do a lot of BIPOC volunteer stuff at Clouds. Um, I also received Dukai in 2011. So nice to see all of you. Um, and thank you to our Zoom check. And I'm wondering if you can turn Carol up just a little bit using that. Yes. So we want to begin today with a uh, practice of responsibility and accountability. So we dedicate our time together this morning to all those who are suffering. May we remember that our suffering and our well-being are shared. We acknowledge the Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples on whose traditional, ancestral, and contemporary lands, clouds and water is an uninvited guest. For those of us who are not indigenous to these lands, may we commit to curiosity and engagement with the lives, justice movements, and sovereignty of the native nations of this territory and beyond. We offer deep gratitude to our Indian, Chinese, and Japanese spiritual ancestors, and contemporaries for all they have given us and for the chance to be here today. May we practice cultural humility. We recognize the Black community and the destruction of the historic Londo neighborhood in which we practice. May we stand side by side in community care. We are all connected. May we work together for the liberation of all beings. So I'm going to go 
go ahead and uh, give a little bit of introduction to what we're doing today. The five of us are going to be engaging in a, a bit of a fishbowl dialogue, a conversation with each other. And this is a conversation around themes that the five of us have been discussing, sometimes one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes in a group, for a while. Um, and some of us have been studying this and writing about this for also for a long time. <laughs> so, um, what we're, we're not going to have a Q&A at the end, we're just going to engage in a, in a discussion. And um, I'm going to kick us off by, by giving a little bit of an introduction and, and context, contextual framework for what we're talking about. But before I do, I just want to say that um, though we're going to be talking about our, our personal experiences as Asian Americans today, um, you know, you may have heard the term that BIPOC or Black, Indigenous, and people of color are not a monolith. You know, the experiences within and under that umbrella are hugely varied. And same with Asian Americans, also not a monolith. And so that today, the five of us are going to be sharing individual perspectives and experiences. So this, this dialogue kind of came from some experiences that I have been discussing with Sosan, who's the guiding teacher here as well as my teacher, um, around experiences that I've been having as a person of South Asian Indian descent in a convert community like Clouds. And in particular, as it pertains to kind of some sentiments that I've heard expressed with some frequency, both in the past as well as recently, by our white and sometimes BIPOC Sangha members regarding what can feel like religious trappings. You know, all of our formal practice, the many, many layers of robes and formal vestments that we wear, the incense, the chanting, sometimes in Pali or Sino-Japanese, uh, the bowing. So kind of this idea that um, there can feel like the, that their trappings are unnecessary formalness or fussiness, and sometimes even a feeling that that formalness is a barrier to entry and relevance, you know, that folks can experience it as a coldness or something that's off-putting when they first encounter Soto Zen forms, or like I said, the liturgy or the ritual, the multifaceted clothing and so on. And so, I am a recently ordained priest in this tradition as well, Shozoku and I, as well as Kato, who's our Jisha today, all were ordained in November here at Clouds. And I, I have a great wish for our community to be one where critique and confusion can be openly expressed so that we may continue to be a living and responsive tra tradition that meets our community's needs and openly moves towards that relevance. I also have a deep wish for us to consciously engage in cultural care. So as I said, I'm a new priest and I personally wish to be a good steward, a really good steward of this Soto Zen, which is a Japanese Zen Buddhist tradition and I am not of Japanese descent. And our tradition lives within a long and historically Asian religion. And so, you know, I wish for us to be able to openly unpack together where our forms, our rituals, our liturgy, our clothing, and so on comes from. Both the shadows and the painful aspects, because Buddhism is full of shadows and historical painful aspects, as well as the liberative and beautiful ones. And honestly, sometimes those overlap. Sometimes they are the same things. So these are big questions, and they have no easy answers. And I feel that they, these questions are, are really important to live into continuously as a community. And so this is where it gets a little spicy. 
<laughs> I, I often experience it as a racial microaggression when folks, especially white folks, express a wish to wipe the slate clean or of the trappings of our practice or simply meet together in the Dharma without those kind of trappings or fussinesses. And sometimes this wish is coming from a place of not wanting to engage in cultural appropriation, which I totally get. And I feel that too. And it's a very loving and important impulse. However, there is a difference between cultural appropriation and cultural misappropriation, which I think we're going to be discussing more today. I'm often aware that we collectively don't easily realize that there is no such thing as a clean slate or a Buddhist practice without cultural appropriation. We are always politically and socially situated. And that in our Minnesota convert community context, that's us here today, wiping away the trappings means wiping away the Asian-ness of our Buddhist practice in favor of an unintentional groundwork or lens of white supremacy colonial extraction, and Protestantism. <laughs> so I, on a personal note, I want to say that when I, as a person of, of Indian descent, put on the juban, the obi, the kimono, the koromo, the belt, and the okesa, all of which I'm wearing right now, <laughs> I feel connected tangibly in my body to our ancestors, those ancestors that we chant regularly here. And I feel protected, I feel safe. And when we feed the hungry ghosts during some of our rituals or ask the Buddhas throughout space and time to listen, which we're gonna do today as our closing chant, I think. Uh, for me, because of my cultural inheritance, this is not a metaphor. This is literal and the Buddhas are listening. So with that, I want to go ahead and, and open up this sort of big, wide open questioning dialogue between the five of us. And, um, and I'll, I'll kind of begin that with, this isn't a prompt, but a question to everyone. You know, how do we hold in our hearts a practice of complexity and questions? I'll give it a go, sort of, on our practice run. We'll just stay with um, the little intro that I wanted to give. Um, so um, I, I am uh, born in Boston to Filipino immigrants. So I didn't think of myself as Asian American until the 1990s. So in fact, I turned myself into an Asian American in a way to have common connection with other people. <clears throat> Along the way, I met people like my good friend Alice Tuan, who from the 90s on, we have been talking about Asian America. Like, is it alive? Is it dead? Should we get rid of it? What do we do with this? Um, so I edited a, a book and introduced a book in 1994, and I'm turning to Bushin because I didn't know Bushin then, but one of the chapters in the book, the book was called Asian, The State of Asian America Activism and Resistance in the 1990s. Now it's a history book, and I bring it up because our history is living with us, and um, one of the chapters came from a place called Minneapolis, and it was about Asian American Renaissance, which Bushin was part of. And it was called a sea change or something like a sea change, talking about race and 
and, and the arts, racial awareness and the arts, Asian American coming to consciousness and the arts. So my question, my living question, the question that I think about every day as I um, think, kind of step forward on, on a path of my own spiritual growth is how do, how do I work with this political category, this external category? For sure, I don't wake up every day thinking I'm Asian American. That's like a thing out there to, to reckon with that, that we have been named this way. And then we also try to claim it so that we have an origin and a history and a place to be recognized. But how do I deal with that when I'm also working on the inside with no categories at all? So my, um, I'm third generation Japanese. Um, I think uh, Ancestry said 97% is um, something like, I'm, I don't know what the 3% is, and I don't really care. But um, my, my grandparents on my father's side emigrated from Japan and brought their Buddhism with them. Um, they were Nichiren. Buddhists. Um, and my understanding, by the way, according to Bell Hooks and some others, is that Nichiren Buddhism is very popular um, among um, African Americans, Black um, Buddhists. Um, I think that it is uh, worthwhile to ask ourselves why some of these questions are coming up. Um, for example, um, do we only want things in English? I, and if that's the case, then what are we doing in Mexican and Thai and other non-English origin um, restaurants? Um, do we want to do something we want to practice in a way that feels familiar, in which case I think, well, then why are we in Buddhism? Because that's not a very familiar um, spiritual home for lots of us. In fact, you know, it's pretty far um, out of the American mainstream. Um, I wonder if we think that... Um, Meditation and um, retreats um, are the essence of Buddhism. Well, meditation and teaching, maybe, are the essence of Buddhism. And I think that uh, if we think that, then Dr. Jake Nagasawa and some other um, people who have really studied Buddhism deeply would probably like to have a conversation with you. And then finally, um, I wonder if uh, people don't want to be disturbed by others in community because ceremony and ritual and forms um, tend to be community oriented. Um, but you know, Buddhism, I think, like a lot of the major religions of the world, and even the minor ones, is a community religion. So I think there are other questions that could be asked, but it's good to investigate. 
I've spoken. <laughs> Kika just whispered to me, I was involved, so. <laughs> um, hmm. For my part, I think I'll start with, um, I, I was sort of listening to what Keka said and I kind of resonated. So I think I'll start with myself personally. I sort of, so I grew up in, I grew up in Hawaii, which is a sovereign kingdom, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and Hawaii is a, is a place where, um, unlike anywhere else in the United States, it's 62%, I think, either Asian American or people of multiracial descent. <clears throat> and so I too, I also sort of became an Asian American because growing up in Hawaii, I didn't really, I didn't really think about it. It was not something that was, that I was terribly conscious of growing up. And then I moved to the continental US. I started in San Francisco. So I moved to first and sort of was like, oh, I have to find something to become because it's not enough that I'm just this or that. My two ethnicities, I'm part Japanese, I'm half Japanese on my father's side and um, Portuguese on my mother's side. <clears throat> so I also had to kind of like reckon with this thing of Asian American, right? It's, it, it became a box that I had to check when I hadn't really thought about it before <clears throat> and, and sort of things like that. And at the same time, I, um, on my father's side um, of the family, they are, my great grandparents came to the US in the early 20th century. So like in the 19 teens, basically they emigrated to Hawaii and they were, I found out much later in life. Um, I, I grew up knowing that they were Buddhist, but I, but I didn't find or sort of realize until I came to college or went to college that they were Soto Zen um, practitioners. And so um, I guess this is all to say that one time when I, when I was in graduate school, um, a friend of mine asked, so what, so what, so why, what are you here for? Like, you know, are you, do you have an intellectual interest in, in Buddhist philosophy or are you, you know, like what's, what's your, what's your thing? And I was, I gave it some thought and I was like, hmm, to tell you the truth, I think I'm working through my own, I said an expletive, but my own stuff. <laughs> uh, that's, that's been the process of my, of my, of my own, I guess, scholarship and practice life. So, um, trying to figure out, you know, seeing the, seeing the ways the Buddhist tradition has been practiced in the United States between Asian American communities, predominantly white convert communities, trying to figure out how did these, how did these come, how did these, these differences come to be and so on. Um, so that's just a bit about myself and the things that I've sort of thought about. Um, I know Shozoku is dealing with some seasonal allergies and may rejoin us when she's able. Um, maybe I'll take a moment to, to uh, we did have a trial run. The five of us got together yesterday on Zoom to chat about things that we wanted to, um, well, just to chat and to, and to connect around this theme. And one of the things that came up, which I mentioned in my intro, is this idea of the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural misappropriation. And it feels kind of central to this conversation in some ways. And, um, and we talked about it for a while. And the, that, how, you know, how do we talk about it? How do we define it? And, um, and I was saying that, you know, cultural appropriation as a phrase has kind of gained a bit of a rhetorical crust. You know, it, it's lost its meaning. It's said so often in so many different ways 
that there's sort of a lack of specificity now, like a, a way that many of us don't really know what we're talking about when we say that, or maybe we do, but others don't in the space. Um, but we talked about how, you know, Buddhism as a 2,500 plus year old religion has traveled through many countries over, over the course of its history. There are many Buddhisms and always throughout that history, there has been a process of cultural appropriation. It's a, a natural and responsive way that cultures and religions kind of move through spaces, move through new cultural kind of contexts, new countries and respond to the needs and cultural realities in those new spaces. Um, so what, you know, what, what are the hallmarks? I think this is what you said, Jake. What are the hallmarks of when that kind of goes wrong? You know, when we would say it's misappropriation here. And, um, you know, some of the things that we talked about were that, you know, when, um, you know, without unpacking it, without being critical about it, when certain elements of a tradition like Soto Zen, which is what we practice here at Clouds, are, um, are kind of highlighted or or elevated because they are the ones that most readily uh, mimic or reiterate the dominant cultural norms. Um, so for example, with Soto Zen, that might be dominant cultural norms of masculinity, of stoicism, of uh, those, you know, there's this uh, image of the, the unflappably moving face, the rigid and upright body, the, the, um, the not being effusive emotionally <laughs> and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, usually unintentionally reiterating uh, systemic greed, hate, and delusion, you know, identity, power, privilege, and oppression in the United States. Um, and then, you know, going a step further, the, you know, well, actually, maybe I can pass this to you, Jake. We, we talked about kind of, um, Going a step further than that, uh, what you know, what what might cultural misappropriation look like as far as the claiming claiming knowledge of what the tradition really is? So maybe I, I pass this to you. Okay. <laughs> um, Aranya has given me the difficult topic. No, no. Uh, yeah. So um, I think. Right, cultural, the, the word cultural appropriation is so, like you said, I like this phrase, it has a kind of rhetorical crust because it's like all this stuff has built up on top of it and we wonder what it really means. And I think it's also the, we see like getting the feedback or hearing the critique of, okay, you're doing cultural appropriation, that's cause for fear. I mean, that's not something, that's something that causes suffering and that's not something that we all wanna be, be doing, right? And so it sort of elicits questions like, well, is it cultural appropriation, for example, that I'm a non-Japanese, not me, but like if a Japanese person or a non-Japanese person takes a Japanese ordination name, for example, or like where's the robes and so on, and, and, and where's, where's the line? And so during our conversation yesterday, I was sort of talking about how, well, I mean, if you think about it, the entire really history of Buddhism's transmission from India, from a pretty small location in northern India, and then throughout the rest of Asia, through for 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 the Soto Zen tradition, th through China, and then to Japan, and then through all, all throughout the rest of Asia, right? That's an entire history of what we might call cultural appropriation, right? It's um, the adaptation of this religion to to new 
to new cultures and new contexts and, and new language. So, so really all of it is a kind of cultural appropriation. So the question becomes then, when is it, when does it veer into this? When does it veer into being problematic? And when does it, when does it become cultural misappropriation? Right. And so I, I think, well, it sort of, we, we were talking about this yesterday, right? That on the one hand, the move of, well, let's, let's sort of remove all of these so-called some, what sometimes people might call cultural trappings of the tradition, right? Removing Japanese language or, um, I don't know, not doing certain rituals or certain, or not taking up certain forms and so on. But then when, and then when that happens, it often, or, or when we do that, what often happens is thinking that, okay, we've removed the cultural trappings, then what often comes through is, um, the kind of, what can we say, the sort of dominant structures, dominant ways of being, right? And that tends to be mm-hmm. white, masculine, straight, Protestant, inflected ways of being, right? Mm. And so that's so that's one one way. And I think it becomes, or, or we might say it becomes more problematic when from that place, people, um, from that place, it becomes a question of of power, right? Who who feels like then they can say that they have um, the power to define the tradition, right? So oftentimes, I think in 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 the United States, in the West, we hear people say, "Well, so called American Buddhism." Um, well, by by removing the Asian cultural trappings, we've sort of recovered the the essence of the Buddhist tradition, right? But firstly, that's like, so, so, so that means you've given yourself the power to define what is the essence of the Buddhist tradition when it's been many, many things over 2,500 years, right? So that's, that's one, one thing. And then, right. And then, and then if, if, in, if indeed it, you have discovered that then that's, it's, it's not true, right? Like if you've reproduced all of these structures of power, that those things were not present in the, in the early tradition. So, um, and then, I don't know. So. So, so yeah, so there's that, that movement of recovery or saving Buddhism from the East or saving Buddhism from itself. And I think, I think I'll pass it now to Keiko because I think Keiko wants to say something. I can't, that's not what. <laughs> you, you said something yesterday. I did say something yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a book I really love. Um, oops, sorry. This is a bit awkward. I think it's twisted. I think I can just leave it on the ground. There's a book I really love so much that I reviewed it upon suggestion by Professor Jake Nagasawa. It's called Imagine Otherwise by Norm Fisher. Um, It's a really great book. I I hope you read it. Um, Explains so many things and um, is a good guidebook and has nice suggestions for daily practice. Um, And then he calls it a gift from the East. Buddhism is a gift from the East. Mm, ouch. As if it was wrapped up in a package freely and given to the West. So the East is a creation of the West. The fact that the East is something other is a creation of the Western imagination. So Asian Americans inherit this complexity that we have. Um, we're trying to claim a place because if we don't claim a place as Asian Americans, we don't exist. Because in the U.S. imagination, specifically, Asia's out there and everyone else is American, i.e. white. 
So if we don't claim Asian America, then we don't have a place. We don't have a cultural place. We don't have a political place. So it's about being seen. But in that being seen, then we're looking for an origin. So that's a difficult piece. So Asian American historians have written many books about these origins from 1800s or earlier. Filipinos claim a very early place, but I'm not really into that competition. <laughs> it's about the Spanish galleon ships hint. Um, so I think that we're in a, it's cultural exchange, I like that word, but it's not on an even playing field. So because it's not even, and because we have these histories, and we don't even know these histories, and Asian Americans, maybe I generalize, but part of our culture is not to be very loud and not to insert ourselves. So it's really hard then in, an, in a space to like insert our history. But I think even in the Twin Cities, we're learning that we have to say our histories, even though we don't often know them, we have to learn them, and then we have to be able to talk about them publicly so that people can connect to them. But that's something that's so aggrieved and difficult on so many levels. And it's made more difficult in settings like religion or martial arts that come from Asia, where suddenly we have to place ourselves again as Asian Americans, while our teachers who are often, often white, I mean, my teachers of Tai Chi and martial arts have often been white, for example, and they'll tell us about Asia and tell us about China. It's like, uh, it's so hard. It's, re it's a really difficult kind of conversation. So thank you for listening. I want to inject another historical note, um, which is that uh, thinking about doing away with um, much of the ritual, the forms, the language, you know, the dress, what what have you, um, is and and doing it sort of thinking, um, you know, that uh, we're going to um, reroute Buddhism you know, into our own culture, uh, whatever that is, is a slap in the face, actually, to the Asian Americans, especially the Japanese Americans, who suffered mightily to save Buddhism in the United States. I, I dare say that if it were not for the Japanese American Buddhists, who kept Buddhism alive while in the U.S. concentration camps during World War II, we would not have Buddhism. Um, Suzuki Roshi came to the United States to minister to Japanese Americans first, those who had survived the um, uh, incarceration of World War II. So, you know, regardless of where we go with the forms. Um, I think it's uh, mightily important to remember where they came from and to honor that tradition. I really love the way that um, Sosan put it, uh, I think in her talk on Buddha's birthday, um, that we needed to honor the um, ancestors who could not practice Buddhism. Uh, during those years. Thank you.
don't want to put you on the spot. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. <laughs> Would you like to add anything? Um, sure. Um, so like, um, kind of chiming to what Roshin said and um, add to that. Um, um, I see connections. I hope you see the connection too. That um, like I recently was reading Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Touching the Earth, and there's a section about sexual responsibility. And this is what he says. Um, Speaking to the right. Yes. Um, says the precepts and the fine manners protects us and do not allow us to be sucked down into the bug of sexual misconduct. And he goes on to say, um, I vow that I shall never dismiss the practice of the fine manners, thinking that I have enough inner freedom and spiritual strength, excuse me, not to, not to need their protection. When I read this, I was like, wow, I felt really great gratitude, deep gratitude, like all the forms that we practice um, has much more meanings and protection that, than we think. It is. Um, and like Rushin said, that's something our spiritual ancestors been passing on and it's it's a wonderful practice to be continue to be curious and explore what it is that we're actually doing. What what is our what is this practice? Um, thank you. Um, there's a story, I spent several years living at San Francisco Zen Center in California, and um, there's a story that, that always circulates about how when Thich Nhat Hanh visited, which he did a couple of times, um, maybe many, maybe more than a couple of times, but he, they, the story always goes that he said, oh, very good, and everything's great, um, but you should sleep more and smile more. And, um, <laughs> and I loved that. Because I felt like that uh, there was this way that that um, opened up for me uh, a space for for loving critique. Like um, I really appreciate um, Sosan as our guiding teacher is as constantly willing to hear me say um, I can't do a full bow today, or I'm not sure I can put my robes on because of a wrist injury today, or <laughs> you know uh, all of these different ways that I'm asking to, um, you know, for warmth, for, for a smile, for an, a, a kind embrace around the specifics, not just of, of um, kind of physical limitation and disability that I deal with, but also the specifics of, um, you know, systemic oppression that I've lived with, systemic racism that I've lived with, what I am and am not willing to sit with in my, my Dharma center, in my uh, practice space. And so I feel like um, we have a really hopeful uh, groundwork here at Clouds where, um, and, and you know, I, I feel like with the guidance of our guiding teacher, Sosan, where we're caring so much um, to have these kinds of conversations to surface and center 
the cultural heritage and inherent inheritance of our practice while also um, listening to what what community members are saying would help um, you know would help keep that door wide open keep the the warmth and the accessibility and the relevance alive so that this isn't um, solely a museum piece or mm -hmm. you know but is actually a living responsive uh, part of how we practice being well with ourselves and each other and I think that's at the heart of this for me too is you know like um, Jake and I were saying around cultural appropriation that like that that critical appropriation piece that critical you know we want we we can't help but um but appropriate we can't help but respond you know kind of uh flex soto zen to meet our needs here in st paul minnesota at this time um but can we be critical about it can we can we be conscientious can we be engaged and ask the hard questions and keep ourselves curious and maybe a little unstable you know always rocking back and forth a little bit asking the hard questions eight minutes left we have eight minutes left panelists <laughs> i'll just jump in because i like um what you're saying um aranya about um the discovery you know when i interviewed um so i wrote a book about little saigon in uh, orange county and when i interviewed the leaders in in little saigon um, i was asking them about the the term asian does it relate to them and so in little saigon asian means chinese so um, we were talking about that and then one of them said to me you know to be asian you have to be from somewhere in asia and i was like you know that sounds obvious but actually that's really true <laughs> and where is asia it's like where it's a gigantic place so again also a, a fan a fantasy of the west so that piece we're always discovering we are always discovering what it means to be asian american and it is in relation to all of us that we're actually finding that so i know that buddhism is all, often talked about in terms of adaptation um i read recently a piece by eve sedgwick um, the late uh, poet and critic um, writing about the pedagogy of buddhism and she said buddhism is about relationality the, the pedagogy is in relation. So I like that because it's saying um, it, it kind of makes me less worried about taking and more interested in the interaction. Mm -hmm. Let me give that some snaps. <laughs> yeah, and I think I'll add to all that, like, to, and, and sort of jumping off of what Bushin said a few minutes ago, right? Like, and so if you think about, if we think about the, the, um, the Soto Zen tradition as it's here in Minnesota, we might think, okay, well then, you know, what's the connection between that and some of these Asian American histories connection to, um, Asian American Buddhists. And it's actually, um, I mean, many of you may already know this, but <clears throat> it's actually pretty deep. I mean, we we here at Clouds and Water, many of our teachers trace their lineage to Katagiri Roshi, Dining Katagiri, and um, right. The, the the reason that Katagiri came to the U.S. in the first place was actually to come to San Francisco when Suzuki Roshi started the San Francisco Zen Center. At that time, it was at a Japanese American temple called Sokoji in San Francisco, 
and he he was very busy sort of ministering to two two congregations, the Japanese American congregation and the predominantly white convert congregation that was interested in, in learning about meditation. And so he had his hands so full that he asked the Soto Zen hierarchy institution in Japan, like, hey, I need another priest here to help me out with stuff. So send me somebody really good. And so they sent uh, Dainin Katagiri. So he started Katagiri Roshi, again, who many of us trace our lineage to here in Minnesota, um, started as Suzuki's helper at, at Sokoji. So, um, so we can consider that even our lineage has this kind of historical connection to our, the, our lineage, the, the lineage of many Soto Zen practitioners here in Minnesota has this historical connection to Sokoji and to and to these um, Japanese American Soto Zen strains of Japanese American Soto Zen tradition. Well, how many minutes do we have? Uh, four. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll say, Anna, I want to bring you back to kind of personal practice. Um, when <coughs> Kato Shozoku and I were ordained in November, I talked a long time with Sosan, our teacher, around naming and how charged and intense naming is. For me, as a person of color in the United States, as a, as a child of immigrants, um, none of my names, my given names, were ever pronounced right, you know, um, and, uh, and and just feeling like Jake had mentioned, um, you know, is it okay for me as a person who isn't of Japanese descent to take on a Japanese dharma name um, or way name uh, at ordination? Uh, and I just had a lot of questions about this, you know, that living practice of, of um, curiosity and discomfort and cultural appropriation versus cultural misappropriation. And my snaps to Keika's um, comment about relationship and relationality is that, you know, I really wanted the checkbox. I wanted uh, somebody to say, yes, yes, it's 100% fine for you to have a Japanese name. Um, everyone knows that it's respectful, you know. Some, you know, I just wanted, I wanted somebody to be able to like put their stamp of approval on it unequivocally. You know, I even had um, Koji, my partner, um, who's got a lot of connections with um, various priests in the Soto Zen world, including a friend from Japan, um, who's also a priest, you know, like, he said my names were okay. Um, and, and I was like, okay. But, you know, at the end, but really what, the looking for that checkbox, wasn't the, the, wasn't the most helpful solution. Um, really, I think what it comes down to for me is, is uh, relationship or relationality. You know, like what is my living relationship with this curiosity, with this question, with this discomfort? Can my ideas change? Uh, it, like if there isn't a checkbox, that means it's always a moving target. Am I up for that? Um, and right now I'm using the Sanskrit pronunciation of my Dharma name or my way name actually. Um, so the Japanese pronunciation would be Ranya and the uh, Sanskrit is Aranya, which is unusual that it's so close. Um, but you know, that's where I landed for now, but maybe that will change because I'm, you know, allowing myself to flex and bend with it. But I just wanted to kind of give a personal example of how how I'm continuing to work with these questions and um, and and keep them alive and not try to settle or find the right thing you know the checkbox the stamp of approval. <laughs> so, um, maybe one maybe one more comment from anybody if anybody has one before we close up. 
I mean, I think that's a that's um, you know a a wonderful example of uh, needing to be um, so conscious of of where we're walking here. Um, I I know I think about this a lot um, as the coordinator coordinator of the BIPOC sitting group. Um, you know where we have a mixture of um, many races, but all not white. Um, you know, and of uh, wanting to wanting to teach and offer examples, um, but also, you know, be very respectful of um, the kinds of questions that we're all asking about, you know, well, what am I doing here? And what is it that I'm practicing after all? So I will end with that. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for being here. And thank you so much, Sosan, for allowing us to have this discussion um, and for suggesting it And when I brought this up. And thank you to each of you panelists for being here with me and having this discussion in our community. And we wanted to leave you, since we're not doing a Q&A, we wanted to leave you with a, a, a practice question or a homework question or a koan what have you, um, which is simply, um, how can you and clouds and water practice? Uh, we, I wrote this down and it's somewhere below, but how can you and, and clouds and water uh, practice caring for the cultural traditions here? Thank you so much.